As the Money Burns is an original podcast by Nikki Woodard. Based on historical research, this is a deep exploration into what happened to a set of actual heirs and heiresses to some of America's most famous fortunes when the Great Depression hits. Each episode has three primary sections. Section 1 is a narrative story. Section 2 goes deeper into the historical facts. Section 3 focuses on contemporary, emotional, and personal connections. Story Recap While teens, Doris Duke and Barbara Hutton try to find ways to fit in society with little luck, Doris's ambitious mother, Nana Lean, wants to make her own fortune by investing with stockbroker Bill Wright, as his wife, Cobina, learns of his extramarital affairs, shattering her perfect world. Now back to As the Money Burns. A Tall Order. Music soothes the soul and can cross racial lines. When a supreme hostess introduces an international guest to one local style, a new media sensation is created. Please note some controversial terms will be used in reference to their historical context. Section 1 Story Arriving on a mission outside the Savoy Ballroom, Supreme Hostess Cobina Wright makes her way into the soul of Harlem. It's early in the evening before the best festivities begin. The Savoy is the happening dance place where all the best Lindy Hoppers of both races gather. The head waiter escorts her over to the table where a tall, thin, African-American man with unusually artistic hands stands to greet her. She takes a seat across from him. She smiles. You come highly recommended. She waves to the head waiter, her obvious source of connection. I understand you have some reservations, but I have the most unusual opportunity for us both. The internationally famous French composer Maurice Ravel is currently in town. He has long been her friend since her days training and singing opera in Europe. Now hosting a reception in his honor the night of his first pro musica performance, Cobina insists that the entertainment showcases the very best and most original talent in America. She believes that to be the spirituals, jazz, and relevant dances. Clearly, it will be a night celebrating African-American culture performed by the best and authentic artists themselves. Her companion leans back and absorbs the opportunity presented to him. He is Hall Johnson, a music composer who has dedicated the last few years gathering, training, and perfecting his choral ensemble from Southern descendants of slaves. Their specialty is singing the spirituals in a manner which Hall considers to be a clean and sincere rendition like originally intended. Avoiding commercializing too soon, Hall would rather they starve than sell out in the wrong way. And he and his choir are starving almost to death. Principles don't feed too well, even for idealists. They sit at their table as he considers the opportunity presented to him. As the nightclub fills with its patrons, Hall watches Cobina absorb the atmosphere with her charismatic warmth and grace. She goes over to greet the assembling band members, handshakes with a few cheek kisses for familiar old friends. They insist she sing for them, and she obliges because, well, she is a ham too. Her reach indeed is far and wide. When she returns, Hall leans forward and offers her his hand. She shakes it, not certain whether he is declining or accepting. A week later, Cobina Wright in her refinement greets Maurice Ravel, who grandly kisses both sides of her cheek. He is very excited about tonight's recital. In preparation and curiosity, he has already visited several establishments under Cobina's guidance and direction. The rest of the guests are who's who in capital S society, including Mrs. Cornelius Vanderbilt, also known as the reigning society queen, 
Grace Wilson Vanderbilt, and Mrs. Bertie Vanderbilt, recently divorced from Alva Vanderbilt's son, along with famed artist George Gershwin, New York Symphony Orchestra director, German-American Walter Damrush, Swiss pianist Rudolf Ganz, Austrian violinist and composer Fritz Kriesler, Polish violinist and composer Paul Kochansky, Gibson Girl creator and illustrationist Charles Dana Gibson. German-born banker Otto Kahn once studied music, even learning to play several instruments, but later became a businessman as well as a philanthropist and patron of the arts. After lots of begging, teen heiresses Barbara Hutton and Doris Duke scored last-minute invites to the cultural affair. Nanaline Duke chaperones the girls at first impressed by the elite guest list and closer to securing her investment opportunity with Cobina's stockbroker husband, Bill Wright. They take their seats. The girls giggle with enthusiasm. Both love music of all kinds. The first to perform are the 17 members of the Hall Johnson Jubilee Choir. perform, guest of honor Maurice Ravel cannot contain himself. Overcome with emotion, he openly expresses praise and delight. In the middle of the program, Ravel, Walter Damrush, and Russian singer Fyodor Shayapin make their way to Hall Johnson's side and introduce themselves upon finishing. Hall confirms he has studied with Walter's brother Frank Damrush, the founder of Juilliard. Many guests are overtaken and moved. The artists are quite impressed by both the technique and emotionality of the pieces, and the society ladies dampen their eyes with their handkerchiefs. Doris nods to Barbara that they are a magnificent choir. Nanaline sits there stone-faced and cold with a frozen forced smile. After the choir finishes for the enraptured audience, the night proceeds intermixed with several jazz pieces. Richard Huey, star of the Broadway hit Porgy, gives a rendering of Negro prayers as sung south of the Mason-Dixon line. For the dancing portion, Alita Webb, who introduced the Charleston in New York and trained most of the dancers in the Big Black Reviews, shows off her signature moves with characteristic ease, rhythm, and movement, with two other dancers from Showboat. Lastly, Miss Abby Mitchell finishes with a selection of spirituals. Cobina has done it again, created a magical, one-of-a-kind night. When the performance is finished, the guests and performers mingle about, some teaching the dance steps to excited guests like Doris and Barbara. Maurice Ravel moves around, inquiring about all sorts of details and shows off the few dance steps he's learned a prior evening. He engages in lively conversation with Hall Johnson. 
Lastly, another member of the audience, Rolo Stebbins, a burgeoning theatrical producer, requests from Cabina a formal introduction to Hall Johnson. Cabina throws a knowing smile at her husband. For weeks, the newspapers will provide details of this exact night. Section 2. History and Historiography As mentioned previously, Cobaina Wright was one of the supreme hostesses of her time. Her success was largely based on her ability to combine people from all walks of life. The Oregon pioneer girl turned international opera star before marrying into Newport wealthy elite would always opt to mix her wide social circle across multiple lines. The super rich with entertainment stars. The larger the divide, the more interesting prospects. One never knew who all might appear at one of her gatherings. Cobina was also one who always spoke glowingly of others, preferring to give rose-tinted views of those around her. She might address a rumor without disparaging either party. She definitely was socially ambitious, and her success came from generosity of both spirit and wealth. She directly promoted the hell out of this soiree, writing columns that appeared across the country and giving endless details of the night and guests. The effect of Cobina's recital should not be underestimated in its influence and timing. It wasn't the first time an international audience was exposed to America's black culture, but it definitely forged important connections for those involved. The French curiosity in the spirituals began in 1857 when French musician Oscar Comatant first wrote about their poetry and charm in his travelogue covering his three years in the United States. In 1895, Paul Bourget described hearing a spiritual at a Georgian plantation. Nine years later, Jules Huret would recount hearing the amazing singing of 1,400 students at Tuskegee. But it was post-World War I that the flourish and interest grew as Roland Hayes and others performed in Paris for both devout religious Catholics and jazz fans. The revised slave songs, referred commonly as the Negro spirituals, had the distinction of both saintly biblical origins while also serving as the foundation of the blues. The religious tales with large emotional swings morphed into another distinct sound emanating from New Orleans, which spread to St. Louis and around the world as jazz. With Prohibition in the Warring Twenties, the emergence of jazz came deeply tied to another cultural movement, the Harlem Renaissance, at the time called the New Negro Movement, a cultural explosion amongst African Americans in poetry, music, dancing, and other achievements. Black themes, storylines, and entertainment elevated into both highbrow and mass popular entertainment. The adoption of more traditionally white indications of wealth and success amongst the rising blacks were both celebrated and criticized within the community. Regardless, widespread racial divisions still meant segregation and oftentimes black artists performing to white-only crowds. Then came the mecca of the movement, the Savoy Ballroom, modeled after the white swing club Roseland. White entrepreneur and Roseland owner Jay Fagan with Jewish businessman Mo Gale built the new facility, and black British West Indies Charles Buchanan served as the manager while also becoming a local civic leader. Located in Harlem at 596 Lenox Avenue between 140th and 141st Streets, the Savoy was an upscale joint with 10,000 square feet, could hold 4,000 people, and named after London's famed Savoy Hotel. It featured a glass-cut chandelier and a marble staircase. The bouncers wore tuxedos, and the Savoy hostesses were Harlem's most beautiful women and would teach people how to dance. Poet Langston Hughes called the Savoy the heartbeat of Harlem. On Savoy's opening night in 1926, 2,000 people had to be turned away. It had a no-discrimination policy, unlike the white-only clientele, Cotton Club, and similar establishments. While it could be predominantly 85% black and 15% white, some nights the crowd might be 
50-50. The biggest determinant of an omission was how good one could dance, especially the famed swing step known as the Lindy Hop. When Clark Gable appeared one evening, the only question seemed to be, could he dance? Several dance steps were developed at the Savoy, including the Lindy Hop, named after famed aviator Charles Lindbergh and later called Jitterbug, Flying Charleston, Jive, Snake Hips, Rum Boogie, and variations of the Shimmy and Mambo. By the late 1930s, the Savoy would host the Battle of the Bands. The first one involved Benny Goodman against house regular Chick Webb. Webb won and would later fend off Count Basie. Another regular Savoy player was Benny Carter, whose music is often used in this podcast's musical transitions. Barely upon arriving in the United States in January 1928, the ultra-modern French Compressionist composer Maurice Ravel had a small dinner with Cobina Wright. Upon learning about his fascination with jazz and modern dance, Cobina offered a few suggestions to help him explore the various African-American culture within the Harlem Renaissance, which he immediately jumped upon. Ravel dived into the world of Harlem nightclubs, musicians, and dancers. He even learned a few dance steps and saw an original-run performance of Porgy, a play adapted by white Southerner DuBose Hayward and his wife Dorothy from his own short novel. They insisted on an all-black cast, becoming the first authentic representation of black culture on Broadway. Ravel's immense passion and delight gave Cobina an idea. She offered to host a reception the night of his premiere. He indicated the interest in doing something with George Gershwin, but Cobina already had other plans. When she explained her intentions to her husband, Bill, he replied, That is a tall order. She set herself the challenge of hosting a reception featuring the very best and most original talent in America. She knew exactly what to do and went to the head waiter at the Savoy who pointed her to Hall Johnson. The highly desired Ravel was very much in demand both for performances as well as an honored guest, yet he constantly gravitated back to Cobina's company. He would eventually celebrate his March birthday with George Gershwin to make up for the digression in plans. Still for Ravel, on this trip, the most memorable occasion was the night of Cobina Wright's recital in his honor. On January 15, 1928, after his premiere performance of his Pro Musica concert American Tour, Maurice Ravel and other distinguished guests attended the reception hosted by Cobina Wright. Months and years later, the memories would ripple outwards, both for the attendees and performers at this party. Maurice Ravel enjoyed the night and publicly proclaimed support of Hall Johnson and his choir. Press releases included his quotes, Charmed by the beauty of the voices and the musicianship of the artiste. Along with quotes from Ravel and other guests, the promotional brochure for the choir stated, The Hall Johnson Negro Choir is composed of genuine down-south Negroes, led by a conductor born and brought up in the center of Georgia, 20 miles from a railroad and where his grandmother, a former slave, taught him to sing the melodies of her childhood. After the performance for Cobina Wright and Maurice Ravel, Hall Johnson and his choir's popularity soared. Thanks to Cobina and her distinguished and esteemed musical guest, more performances were soon arranged. On February 29th at the Pythian Temple and March 20th at New York's Town Hall, by April 1928, they performed on radio, followed by tours including Rochester in October. In 1929, Hall Johnson and choir performed in the small independent short film St. Louis Blues with Bessie Smith the musical recording featured in Section 1. More out-of-town tours, radio, and even an ongoing engagement with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra in the summer stadium concerts followed. Hall had formed his choir in September 1925, stayed focused, had one prior performance on December 20, 1927, and then seemingly overnight became an instantaneous success in 1928. 
1930, Hall arranged the music for the Green Pastures musical, featuring stories of the Bible's Old Testament, performed by an all-black cast. Another of Cobina's guests, Roland Rollo Stebbins, professionally went by Lawrence Rivers, was a former stockbroker turned full-time theatrical producer in 1929, financed the play without any concern of making a penny back. Instead, the play ran for 16 months at Mansfield Theater and won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for the white playwright Mark Connolly, who adapted the story from a book by the white author Rourke Bradford. In 1936, the film adaptation of The Green Pastures would be one of only six all-black cast films during the Hollywood studio era. Opening at New York's Radio City Music Hall, it was an instant success, selling 6,000 tickets per hour and playing in some theaters for over a year. It was the top-grossing all-black cast film until 1954's Carmen Jones, starring Dorothy Dandridge and Harry Belafonte. In 1933, Hall directed his second Broadway musical, Run Little Chillin, which was another hit. Hall Johnson's work would also include over 30 feature-length films, including Disney's 1937 Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, when Snow White is awakened by the prince's kiss to a heavenly choir singing, Someday My Prince Will Come. Another film, Hal Roach's Zenobia, and more distinctly, vocals for Disney's 1941 Dumbo, including When I See an Elephant Fly. Johnson himself provided the voice for the character Preacher Crow, with the choir as the voices of other Crow characters. In 1935, the play Porgy was transformed into an opera, Porgy and Bess, by George Gershwin, with vaudeville star and tap dancer John Bubbles in a supporting role. The film adaptation in 1959 was directed by Otto Preminger, starred Sidney Poitier, Dorothy Dandridge, and Sammy Davis Jr. The film was both a commercial and critical flop. However, the opera continues to be performed to great acclaim and ongoing success. It should be noted that the explosion of black culture also had its criticisms, in part the whitewashing of more upperly mobile and gentrified blacks within the community. The green pastures and porgy stories were both written by white authors and eventually films and plays with white directors. Although the writers and other higher-ups sincerely attempted to provide authenticity, especially in dialect, and provide sympathetic characters, the depictions were nonetheless very stereotypical, patronizing, and riddled with complicated racial under and overtones. The big breakthrough came within casting. There were harsh fights over having actual black actors rather than white actors in blackface. It had been proposed that Fred Astaire, Al Jolson, and Rita Hayworth perform in blackface for the 1959 Porgy and Bess film. The insistence on an actual use of the black-only performers was a large step forward, and those successes helped show that African-American culture did have mainstream and financial appeal. A quick note, today's episode's publication date is September 3rd. On this day in 1929, the stock market reached its highest peak of 381.17 on the Dow Jones, shortly prior to the October 29th crash. It would not return to that mark for another 25 years until 1954, the same year as the film Carmen Jones. Soon we will cover this peak within our story, but for now we will have so much more to cover before that and the crash. Still, a few seeds are planted once again in the ongoing saga of our very complicated and twisted tale. Any name drop might rise and suddenly disappear like bubbles on a warm summer day. Section 3. Contemporary and Personal Relevance My journey into media and our subject goes all the way back to high school, making documentaries for an activity known as History Fair, a history version of Science Fair. Nearly missing nationals my junior year, instead of prepping my project for Washington, D.C., I spent the summer in Rhode Island, thus leading my ties into the main story. 
Returning for my senior year, I made one last group media attempt to be bested by a group of sophomores with a damn good project on Negro spirituals. My only irritation with them? They always timed their sentimental crying on cue during Q&A. Ah, the art of competition and real presentation skills. No matter, my love of history and media endures. My high school's wide ethnic diversity included a majority of almost 40% black, then an even split around 20% each of white, Hispanic, and Asian, and 10% distinctly other. This instilled a love and curiosity of many cultures, which led me to grad school at the University of Chicago for Middle Eastern Studies. There in my last year, swing music had a big revival, and thus some friends and I enjoyed learning the different dance styles. During the week, my favorite dance partner was a French-speaking Swiss man who we'd practice in the halls and on the side of our faculty receptions, teaching me new steps for us to hit the floor on Friday or Saturday nights at the university's main hall or at the Willowbrook Ballroom. We took my mom and sister out for graduation weekend, and they still mention the experience to this day. Upon leaving grad school, I worked for an independent documentary company that produced over 100 hours a year for the History Channel, Nashville Network, and other cable channels. In my promotion to research, the office manager pointed out a previous documentary on the origins of gospel music. Airing only once, it was one of the most disappointing shows they ever made. Our company attempted to sell directly online with all but one returned promptly. The issue? Well, the team of white and Jewish producers and researcher had left out the African-American element, which is pretty essential as the most predominant and interesting part. When they told me I was dumbfounded, how could they cover a whole hour on white people? Later, the company went on and did a great documentary for the discovery on the Delta Blues. I know the primary main story is about privileged white people, but trust me, I wouldn't be interested in the story if it didn't have so much more of the world in it. This story and the people involved have a far and wide reach, so hold on. I hope you'll enjoy the ride. Next, when we return to As the Money Burns, unsuccessfully navigating the rough waters of adolescence and love leaves one heiress literally drifting out to sea. Until then. As the Money Burns is an original podcast written, produced, and voiced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. The recording of Hall Johnson Choir with Bessie Smith from the 1929 short film St. Louis Blues is provided by the Library of Congress and in the public domain. All other archival music has been provided by Past Perfect Vintage Music. Check out their website at www.pastperfect.com. Please come visit us at As The Money Burns via Good Pods, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Transcripts, timeline, episode guide, and character bios are available at asthemoneyburns.com.